Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Welcome to our Rosh Hashanah service. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, celebrates the coronation of Messiah as King. Uh, the coming of the kingdom of God through Melch Mashiach, through King Messiah. Indeed, this festival is also known in Hebrew as HaMelech, as the king. Uh, and we'll put this on the overhead. Indeed, the Rabbi Satya Gaon, in his famous 10 reasons for blowing the shofar in Rosh Hashanah, he says this as one of his 10 reasons. The sound of the shofar is blown when a king is coronated. On Rosh Hashanah, the shofar is blown to acknowledge the Lord as ruler of the universe and the coming king for the final day of judgment. And in keeping with this festival theme, uh, I'd like us to focus today on worshiping the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who will soon return on a future Rosh Hashanah when that final shofar blast is, is sounded in heaven. And to get at this glorious theme, I'd like us to look at the book of Revelation today, which is all about the return and the coronation of Yeshua the Messiah as king, as king of kings and lord of lords. And the book of Revelation, uh, outside of just uh, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Haggai, outside of those three, the book of Revelation quotes or cites every other book in the entire Hebrew scriptures. So let's turn to Revelation 4, beginning in verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns down before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw this line of, no, I, then I saw this lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne, circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the, from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And by your blood, you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and, and, and uh, tribe and language and people and nation. 
You've made them to be a malachic kohanim, a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Hallelujah. In the book of Revelation, John is shown heaven, the ultimate reality. And what he sees there is worship. John is shown the essence of what happens in heaven. The essence of ultimate reality. Uh, and what he sees is worship. What a perfect theme for Rosh Hashanah, which celebrates the coronation of the king, King Messiah. Everything in the universe turns on worship. And we're going to learn three things today about worship on the overhead. Uh, the need for worship, the way to worship, and the focus of worship. So first, uh, let's look at the need for worship. The first thing we see here is that everything is worshiping. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, the angels, uh, all the hosts of heaven. There's a universal need for worship. The Bible says that to, that to glorify God, to ascribe honor to him, to declare the glories of and submit to the greatness of God is the universal design of everything. We were made for worship. Everything needs to worship. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist says, The heavens are telling the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. To the ends of the earth, their voice goes forth. King David, the psalmist says, Look at the beauty of the earth uh, with its oceans and mountains and forests. Look at the beauty of the stars and the planets. Why are they so beautiful? Because they're doing what they were created to do. They're submitting to and declaring the glory of their creator. They're being exactly what they were created to be. And therefore, they're glorifying God. And that's why they're so beautiful. They're worshiping, in a sense. They're declaring the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. When people, when people look at you, are they attracted by your godly character? Uh, at the greatness and the nobility of your love and joy and humility and kindness. If not, it's because you're not doing what the mountains are doing. What the birds and the animals are doing. They're being what God created them to be. They're glorifying God in their own way. They are worshiping their creator. And yet, you and I... We're not being everything that God made us to be because we were made to worship. But we're not worshiping God with all of our being. Uh, we're not submitting to the greatness of our, of our creator. Everything must worship. Now, because you were designed for worship, because worship is a universal need, you will worship something. Here's some examples. Here's a football fan. All week, he studies the object of his adoration. <laughs> he reads about it, pours over statistics, talks about it, listens to sport radio, uh, predicts the outcomes. Then on Sunday, he spends lots and lots of time and effort to get into the, the presence of the object of his adoration. And during the game, his whole posture changes. He praises his team. Uh, he shouts. He stands and he cheers. Uh, his face is aglow. What is this? This is worship. Famous modern author Tom Wolfe wrote an article called The Worship of Art. In it, he says that the upper classes 
used to sneer at traditional religion, but they have to have a religion, even if they don't call it that, because everyone must worship something. And for them, their new religion is art. He says, years ago in the great mansions and the lobbies and the parlors, they were adorned with crosses and, and crucifixes and stars of David. Today, they're adorned with pieces of art. He says, in all the great mansions in New York City, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, they had chapels. And you go into these chapels, and today what you'll see there, you know, beautiful art. You walk in there, you must be reverent. You, you meditate. You mustn't talk loud in front of the art. <laughs> but to use these chapels for prayer today, well, that would be seen in very bad taste. He says, the rich people used to leave their estates to their churches and their synagogues. Now they leave it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> he says, today, to show you're a person of spirituality uh, and not just some crass materialist, you get into art. What's he talking about? Worship. Modern, secular forms of worship. Or, or look at sex. Our culture is obsessed with the sight of a sexually attractive object. Many of you don't want anyone else to know how much it preoccupies your thoughts. How easily you become addicted to sexual images. What is that? It's a form of worship. Or look at the fascination with our, our celebrities. Uh, the real history of, of the royalty of kings and queens is actually a history of tyranny and bloodshed and slavery. Yet any country that still has a king or a queen, they're absolutely obsessed with, with the glitz of the royal family. And in, and in countries like ours, where we have no royalty, we take the super beautiful, the super athletic, uh, the super rich, even the super criminal, <laughs> and we turn them into our kings and queens. And we exalt them. We turn them into celebrities. Why? On the overhead. The Bible says it's because we all need to worship something greater than ourselves. It's a memory trace in our souls, a memory trace of someone on the throne whose power and justice and wisdom and might and glory is like the sun shining in all its strength. Because our soul has this memory trace, we've got to worship something. We were created to worship. Hallelujah. We were created, we were made to worship at the overhead. I mean, because we all find something to worship, uh, even if it's not our true object of worship, even, worship, even if it's not God, uh, we now bow down to beautiful bodies or incredible football teams or celebrities, or we bow down to wonderful music and art. But our spiritual natures, like our physical natures, will be served. You deny them food, they'll gobble poison. But eat, they will. Do you recognize worship in your life? Anything that gives you meaning, anything before which you're reverent, anything that moves you to tears, anything that motivates your life can become an object of worship. There's a universal need for worship. John saw this in his view of heaven in the book of Revelation. Now, now some of you may claim, well, well, I'm a skeptic. I don't worship anything. But then what you're really worshiping is often your need for control. Uh, Peter Schaefer's famous play, Equus, uh, it's all about a troubled adolescent boy who believes that horses are God. Uh, and this boy, after committing a crime of blinding six horses, he's committed to this psychiatrist. 
And the whole play is about this encounter uh, of the psychiatrist uh, with this boy. And the psychiatrist finds that because this boy worships horses, his, he is pulsating with life. Uh, that when he gallops on the horse, it invigorates him. And as a result, he does not live a cramped, dull, gray life. But he pulsates with life, with, with wild abandon. His whole life is ablaze with worship. And in contrast, the secular psychiatrist, he looks at himself and he realizes how dead his own life is. Uh, he's bought into this rationalistic secularism uh, of the Western knowledge classes, which say you must not surrender to, surrender to anything because, because there is no immortality. Uh, there is no supernatural. There's nothing higher than yourself. He sees a boy who surrendered to something greater than himself. That's what worship is, to relinquish control to someone greater than yourself. And he sees this boy's life is full. And he looks at himself, and he's given control to no one and no thing. He's been taught that there's nothing worthy of that. And as a result, his life is cramped, and he admits Without worship, you shrink. He says, I've settled for the pallid and provincial out of my own eternal timidity. You may say you worship nothing, but then you're just killing your humanity. Here's what even a secular writer writes. This is from an op-ed in, in a British newspaper called The Independent. He writes this, we need to worship something something outside of yourself that's better and bigger than yourself. I personally, he says, worship nature and the environment. Of course, he's making the mistake of worshiping the, the, the creature instead of the creator. But he's right to say we have this innate need to worship. If our, uh, if our worship is not rightly ordered, if we don't worship the, the Lord God who made us, C.S. Lewis says this, you're cowards half-hearted creatures who don't want to surrender or, or, or glorify the Lord. We're like the small boy playing in the mud and in, in an inner city slum, going after lust and ambition and money when we've been offered the vacation of a lifetime at the seashore, infinite joy in the eternal presence of God. The Lord commands us to praise him, not because he needs our praise with us on the overhead, uh, but because we need to praise to praise and worship our maker, our redeemer, the lover of our soul. Everyone worships something or someone. On the overhead, C.S. Lewis writes this. To see what worship means, we must suppose ourselves in perfect love with God. Drunk with, drown in, dissolved by that delight, which far from remaining pent up within, flows out from us incessantly. And on the, our joy, he says, is no more inseparable from the praise in, uh, in, in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness of a mirror receives its, we, the, a mirror receives is separable from the brightness which it gives. C.S. Lewis, he's showing us how praise and joy are inseparably linked together. Praise and joy are linked. You need to praise something bigger than you, someone and something greater than you, something better than you. Without it, there is no true praise. No, there is no true joy. There is no true humanity. So uh, on the overhead, number one, everything must praise. Everything must worship. That's the need. And then number two, how should we worship then? 
Revelation, I'm sorry, so we see this uh, in individual, all, we see all the individual elements of worship in that passage we reread from Revelation 4 and 5. You have praise, you have thanksgiving, you even have confession when, when John weeps because that no one's worthy to open the scroll. You also see here the means of worship. You know, when the elders fall down to praise God, they have their harps, which they're praising the Lord with. Uh, biblically, music is the heart of worship. Worship must be from your whole being. And music is both analytical. You have to use your sk their skill, uh, their structure, their, there's rhythm, there's a beat. But music, it's also emotional. Uh, it involves the whole being. We also see these bowls of incense, uh, the prayers of the saints. Prayer is also a part of worship. We also see the exposition, the exposition of truth. Look at Revelation 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. Revelation 5, verse 9. You're worthy because you were slain. And by your blood, you purchased for God people from, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. We see here, worship includes praise, thanksgiving, confession, music, prayer, exposition of truth. We see all these elements in the heavenly worship in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. But the heart of worship is one word, worthy. This word is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. Worthy are you, Lord our God, on the overhead. Uh, worthy is the Lamb. Our English word worship actually comes from the word worthy. It comes from the Old, Engli old English worth-ship. Worship literally means to ascribe worth. When all the beings in heaven declare to the Lord, you are worthy, they're letting the infinite worthness, infinite value of Yeshua sink in. And true worship always has important effects. The first thing, the 24 elders in heaven, what they do? What is the first thing they do? They cast down their crowns before him. That's the sign you know you've been worshiping. They cast their crowns. And the overhead. If you've ever truly worshipped, if you've seen the worth of God, you give him everything. You give up everything. You relinquish control of your life. He is preeminent. Nothing else matters but Yeshua. You cast your crowns. You lose control. So ask yourself on this Rosh Hashanah, what has the crown of my life the way you know you're worshiping the Lord God is that he becomes preeminent in your life. God becomes the most important priority. The most important priority in the way you handle your money, uh, in the way you conduct your career. God becomes the most important priority in the way you carry out your relationships, in the way you use your tongue, in, the way, in how you form your opinions. Has that happened to you? Can you see this radical reorientation of your life? True worship changes everything. People who come to worship only say twice a year on the high holy days aren't. They're not worshiping, truly. So on the overhead, that's number one, the need for worship. And number two, uh, the way to worship. And now finally, number three, the focus of worship. And we see here in the book of Revelation that the focus of worship is on God in general and on Yeshua the Messiah in particular. 
Let's look at this by, look, by starting in Revelation uh, chapter 1. Uh, and and as, you, as you know, the book of Revelation, it's filled with all these uh, fantastic images uh, and symbols and, and, and numbers. The book of Revelation is filled with numbers. You, you who love numbers love the book of Revelation. <laughs> the number three is, all, is particularly important in, in this book. It's the number for God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. It's also the number of the rhythm of the book of Revelation, which I'll get into in a moment. The number four is important, which is the number of creation. We read about the four angels and the, on the, and the four winds and the four corners of the earth. In the book of Revelation, we read about this fourfold group of humanity, people from every tribe and nation and tongue and kindred, meaning people from all over creation, this fourfold division. Then there's the number seven, which is the number of perfection, the number of perfect completion. The book of Revelation is organized around seven parallel narratives. You also see seven congregations, seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven crowns, seven heads, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven hills, seven kings. And we have multiples of seven, like 7,000 who die in the earthquake, uh, the seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Then there's the number 10, the number of completion, there's the number 12, which is the number of the people of God. Uh, so you see 12 tribes, uh, 12 apostles, 12 stars above the woman's head. The new Jerusalem has 12 foundations on which are named the 12 apostles. The tree of life, Revelation 22, bears 12 kinds of fruit for the healing of the nations. Then you have multitudes, um, um, multiples of 12. You have 24 elders around the throne. Representing the 12 people, 12, uh, representing a representative of 12 being the people of God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Then we have 144,000 witnesses in, in chapter 7, which is what? Which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. The people of God times the people of God times a number which represents hugeness. So these numbers in the book of Revelation, they're very important. They help us to understand what's going on in this book. But the number that's the most important is the number three. It's what I'm going to call the rhythm of Revelation. The Revelation waltz, if you will. You know, what's a waltz? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. We see this also in the music. We see it in our own music, right? Three, four times, six, eight times. Let's see the pattern here in the text. Look at, let's start with Revelation 1.1 1, 1 on the overhead. The revelation from Yeshua the Messiah, which God gave him, that's number one, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, that's number two. God gave the revelation to Yeshua, who gave it to his angel, and he sent this angel to his servant John. Then what does John do? Look at Revelation 1 verse 2. John bore witness to everything he saw. So that's one, two, three. The father gave it to the son, the son to the angel, the angel to John, uh, who bore witness. One, two, three. What did John bear witness to? Revelation 1, verse 2, he bore witness to the word of God, that's one, uh, and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, that's two, and to all that he saw, that's three. So we see this triad pattern. One, two, three, one, two, three. Look, next verse, Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, that's one. And blessed are those who hear it. Uh, that's two. And who keep what's written in it for the time is near. That's three. So just the first paragraph of the first chapter of the book, book of Revelation, we have one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. 
we have three threes. John is trying to tell us the number three is important. Then we come to the number seven, Revelation 1, verse 4. John to the seven congregations that are in Asia. Now, of course, there were more than seven congregations in Asia, but John writes to these seven because that's the important number, the number of perfect completion. And these seven congregations were in a circular postal route where they shared letters with one another. This message, of course, is not just for these seven congregations, but this is a perfect message from a perfect God that is a perfect message for his people, symbolized by the perfect number seven. And in every chapter, we see why Yeshua is worthy of worship. This book is all about exalting Yeshua as our savior, as our redeemer, as our bridegroom, as our king. And in chapter one, John wants us to know why Yeshua is worthy of the exaltation that he's about to receive. Why is Messiah worthy of worship? Why do we worship him as our returning Rosh Hashanah king? Let's go to our text to answer the question. Revelation 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from, here's our triad again, him who is and who was and who is to come. The number three again. Who is this? Revelation 1, verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so John in verse 4 says, grace to you and peace from the God Almighty, who is and was and is to come. Here's this number three again. The, the number of God. Uh, and if you flip to the end of the book, Revelation 22, verse 13, Yeshua says these same words to describe himself. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then back in Revelation 1, verse 4, we have this mysterious language, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Remember John's pattern here, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Revelation 1, verse 4 again. Grace and peace to you from one, he who is and was and is to come. There's one. Uh, and from the seven spirits before the throne. That's two. And from Yeshua the Messiah. There's three. And this threefold description of the Godhead gives us a pretty good clue of who these seven spirits are. We have God the Father. We have Yeshua. And so this reference to the seven spirits is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. He's that perfect spirit described here by that perfect number of perfection, the number seven. On the overhead. So John here in Revelation chapter 1, he's already telling us why Yeshua is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship because he's God. And we see that with this three-part formulation here of the triunity of God. And he emphasizes this with his introductory words in verse 4 of grace to you and peace from. Who are you going to get peace from besides God? And then immediately following, we get this triune reference to God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. So again, John's communicating to us, Yeshua is worthy of worship because he is God. And indeed, if he were not divine, it would be blasphemy. It would be, it would be idolatry to worship him. But Yeshua is Lord. He is Adonai. And that's why we worship him. That's why Yeshua allows his disciples to worship him and does not rebuke them. He's the creator and the sustainer of the world. So he's inherently worthy of worship. And he is the only one who is. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Indeed, because Yeshua is God, we're obligated to worship him. We're commanded to worship him. More to the point, we were created to worship him. Next verse, Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Yeshua the Messiah, who is the faithful witness... 
So not only is Yeshua Lord, but he's also the faithful witness. This witness that not only tells us the truth, but this, this witness is the truth. Yeshua is the faithful witness. Yeshua is the truth, and therefore, he's the faithful witness who's worthy of our worship because of his faithfulness. And not only is his testimony true, but all the testimony given by others in the scripture is ultimately all testimony about him. Indeed, Luke 24, he makes this very clear. Yeshua tells the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 25, how foolish you are and slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moshe and all the prophets, all the Nevi'im, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, Yeshua, he's not only the faithful witness who testifies to the truth and who is the truth, but he's also the faithful witness to which all the other witnesses testify. And therefore, he is worthy of worship. Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Yeshua, the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Not only is Yeshua the faithful witness, he's also the firstborn from the dead. This word first, firstborn, by the way, doesn't, talk, doesn't mean that you're physically born. It doesn't, it's also not talking about birth order either. It's a Hebrew idiom. And it means preeminence and supremacy. It's not talking about birth order. For example, King David in Psalm 89 is called the firstborn even though he was the last born in his family. <laughs> it's on the overhead. This reference to Messiah being the firstborn from the dead has at least three different meanings. Number one, by using the same title as was given to King David, it shows the Yeshua is fulfilling the prophecy as the Messianic king descended from King David. Number two, the firstborn from the dead means that he was literally, literally the first to rise from the dead with a new resurrection body. And number three, it's his title of supremacy and preeminence. Then we read this in Colossians 1, verse 15. Yeshua is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or Colossians 1, 18. He's the head of the body, the holy congregation. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may have preeminence. And in Hebrews 1, 6. When he brought his firstborn into the world, he says, that all God's angels do what? Worship him. Even the angels worship Yeshua. He is over all creation. He is preeminent over death. He's preeminent uh, in, in his resurrection. Now, now some might try to claim, well, Lazarus, he was raised before Yeshua. Wasn't Lazarus the first one to be raised from the dead? No. Lazarus was not resurrected. Lazarus died again. <laughs> he was only temporarily revived. He did not get a new eternal supernatural resurrection body. Yeshua is the first true resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who's overcome and conquered hell and death and the grave. And that makes him worthy of worship. Now remember our one, two, three pattern. Yeshua the Messiah is one, the faithful witness. Two, the firstborn from the dead. And now number three, ruler of the kings of the earth. Look at Revelation 1 verse 5. And from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Worship him. We worship him because of his rank. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. People bow and curtsy, you know, the kings and queens of England. How much more for thee, king of kings and lord of lords? So while we, yes, we respect and we honor earthly rulers, there's only one we worship, and that's Yeshua. And so we worship Yeshua because he's God, because he's the faithful witness, 
because she's the firstborn from the dead, because she's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. That's who he is. But we also also worship him for a second reason, not just for who he is, but also for what he has done. And it leads us to the next phrase, Revelation 1, verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The most majestic aspect of Yeshua's worthiness for our worship is not just who he is, but also what he's done. Then in verse 5 starts with, to him who loved us. As we discussed in our series uh, a couple years ago, if you were here on the family, this is how we defined love. We have it on the overhead. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Yeshua isn't worthy just because of an emotion that he displays towards us. We worship him for the love that he has for us. That's what manifested in his actions. And so we see a triad here as well. Look again, Revelation 1, 5 and 6. Through him who one loved us, Number two, freed us from our sins by his blood. And three, has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. One, two, three. Book of Romans, five, verse eight. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. First Peter, three, 18. For Messiah died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us back to God. And Isaiah 53, six. All of us have gone astray, each to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Yeshua freed us from our sins by his blood. We were not just, and we weren't just freed, but we were liberated from our sins. God is holy and unrighteous and just. Our sins are acts of cosmic treason against him. And so we deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. We rightly stand condemned before the holy God. And we could not deliver ourselves from our sins. But someone outside of you had to deliver you from your sins. Well, not just anyone could deliver you, right? Adam, Adam can't deliver you. (laughs) He ate from the tree. Uh, Abraham can't deliver you. Uh, He lied about Sarah being his sister. He gave her over to Pharaoh to save his own neck. King David, man after God's own heart. But he can't deliver you. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband Uriah killed. Moses, the one whom God spoke with face to face, he can't deliver you. He struck down the Egyptian taskmaster and later struck the rock twice in defiance of God's command. Only Yeshua can deliver you. He's absolutely unique. He alone is sinless. He alone took on your sins as your Yom Kippur sin and guilt offering, as your scapegoat. He alone is the God-man who came to redeem us. He alone is the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of Satan. Listen to John describe Yeshua in Revelation 1. I'm sorry, in Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look within. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. This lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which is the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. 
he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the, what, what happens? The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls of incense with the prayers of God's peoples. And they sang a new song. Hallelujah. Saying what? Saying worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they'll reign on the earth on the overhead. He is worthy. He's worthy because he freed us from our sins by his blood. And so we worship Yeshua because he's God, because he's the faithful witness, because he's the firstborn from the dead, because he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we worship him because he loves us, because he's freed us from our sins by his blood, and because he's made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve our Lord and God. Revelation 1, verse 6. And he's made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve as God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we see this repeated in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you purchased for God cursed persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and their reign on the earth. Let me see this again repeated in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you came to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. On the overhead, Yeshua is worthy of our worship. Because he's God, because he's the faithful witness, because he's the firstborn from the dead, because he's really the kings of the earth. He's worthy because he's worthy because who he is. And he's also worthy because what he's done. He's worthy because he loved you and he freed you from your sins by his blood. And he made you to be a kingdom of priests to serve your Lord. Now, although we're to worship Yeshua, nonetheless, and our own strength uh, and merit and righteousness, we are not worthy. To worship him. So how do I become worthy to offer the worship that is worthy of the one who is worthy of worship? Revelation 1, again verse 5. To him who loved us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. That's what now makes us worthy. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeshua is worthy both because of who he is and because of what he has done. But Yeshua is also worthy of worship because in his person and in his work, he also makes you worthy to offer him worship that is worthy of him. Because apart from the person and the work of Yeshua, there's nothing you could do or I could do that could possibly offer that would be worthy of him. We cannot lift up clean hands before God if our hands aren't clean. Isaiah 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. That's what Isaiah is calling sinful Israel. He's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitudes of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or rams or goats. When you come to appear before me, Who's required you of this, this, this trampling of my courts? 
Bring to me no more vain offerings. Incense, it's an abomination to me. New moons and the Shabbat uh, and, and the calling of the sacred assemblies, these convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. He's talking about the worship that people are offering him. They become a burden to me, he says. I'm wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are stained with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let's reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. The Lord says, do not come before me with your worthless worship. You must first be made clean. And the good news is that on this Rosh Hashanah, we can become before the one who loves us. We can come before him and he can cleanse us. Even Yeshua the Messiah who's freed you from your sins by his blood. And if you repent and trust in him, he will make you, he'll make you into a kingdom of priests uh, who, who now can offer worship that is acceptable and worthy in the sight of God. So on this Rosh Hashanah, Yeshua our King is worthy of worship. He's worthy of our worship because he's God. He's worthy because of who he is. He's worthy because of what he's done. And because of what he's done, he has made you worthy to offer worship to him that is worthy of him. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, on the Rosh Hashanah, we focus on worshiping you. Hallelujah. Yeshua and, and, we, and, and the, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. For worshiping you, Lord, is the ultimate reality. Everything in the universe turns on worship. Lord, we want to be part of that great heavenly choir, worshiping you. Lord Yeshua, on this Rosh Hashanah, we acknowledge that to glorify you, to ascribe honor to you, to declare your glory, to submit to your greatness, that's the universal design of every living creature. We were made to worship. We want to worship you, Yeshua, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Husband, our Lord, our King, the lover of our soul. Our heart's desire and our passion and our longing and our fulfillment, Lord, is to worship you. Lord Yeshua, we coronate you today on this Rosh Hashanah, this festival of the King. You are on the throne. You alone are worthy. You purchased us with your blood. Your power and justice and wisdom and might and glory are like 10,000 suns shining in their full strength. Lord, today, help our lives to pulsate with your praise and worship, with wild abandon. Let our whole life be ablaze with your glory as we live to honor and to worship you. Let it invigorate and energize our whole being. Lord, I'm the Rosh Hashanah. Help us to be in perfect love with you, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that joy, that delight. 
for you are enthroned on the praises of your people. So let us give you this praise and worship that both feeds our souls and which you, Yeshua, so richly deserve. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.